September 15, 2021, Hillsborough North, and not Hillsborough, in Hilo, Hawaii, over the internet. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Creation of the Fourth Order, Chapter 28, Parendana Becomes a Woman in the Next Life, <coughs> Text 21. Uh, if I could just interrupt one more time. I, uh, because I'm driving, I'm on my phone, I don't really practice that when I share my screen. You can chant it if you have this on your phone or your computer or in a physical book. Katanu Dina. Dara Kirva Parayana Vartishyante Maigate Vartishyante Ido how? How? New. New. Indeed. Indeed. Dadakaha. Sons. Dinaha. Poor. Dadakihi. Daughters. Va. Or. Aparayanaha, having no one else to depend on. Vartishyante will live. Mai, when, gate, gone from this world. Bina, broken. Navaha, boat, Eva, like, Udadao, in the ocean. Srila Prabhupada's translation. King Paranjana continued worrying. After I passed from this world, how will my sons and daughters, who are now fully dependent on me, live and continue their lives. Their position will be, that, will be similar to that of passengers aboard a ship wrecked in the midst of the ocean. Srila Prabhupada's purport. At the time of death, every living entity worries about what will happen to his wife and children. Similarly, a politician also worries about what will happen to his country or his political party. Unless one is fully Krishna conscious, he has to accept a body in the next life according to his particular state of consciousness. Since Paranjana is thinking of his wife and children and is overly engrossed in thoughts of his wife, he will accept the body of a woman. Similarly, a politician or so-called nationalist who was inordinately attached to the land of his birth will certainly be reborn in the same land after ending his political career. 
One's next life will also be affected by the acts one performs during this life. Sometimes politicians act most sinfully for their own sense gratification. It is not unusual for a politician to kill the opposing party. Even though a politician may be allowed to take birth in his so-called homeland, he still has to undergo suffering due to his sinful activities in his previous life. The science of transmigration is completely unknown to modern scientists. So-called scientists do not like to bother with these things because if they would at all consider the subtle subject matter and the problems of life, they would see that their future is very dark. Thus they try to avoid considering the future and continue committing all kinds of sinful activities in the names of social, political, and national necessity. We have some interesting things here in the purport that we generally excuse our sins on the basis of necessity. <laughs> I know this is wrong, but I have to do it. <laughs> and we may, be, we may take birth in our homeland or in our family, but uh, we might take birth in some low position. Maybe we'll be a dog in our family or a dog in our homeland. Katam nu dadaka dina dadakir va para yanaha vartisyante maigate bina nava ivo dadao. King Puranjana continued worrying. After I pass from this world, how will my sons and daughters, who are now fully dependent on me, live and continue their lives? Their position will be similar to that of passengers aboard a ship wrecked in the midst of of the ocean. So here we see Prabhupada saying that at the time of death, everybody worries about their family members. We had last week a verse about Paranjana worrying about his wife, and here he's worrying about his children. So again, as we mentioned last week, this mentality of Paranjana is considered very laudable in the material society. So if someone says, you know, how would you judge a successful life? And you get this picture of somebody dying in old age from natural causes, surrounded by their spouse and their children, their family, their friends, and there's all this mutual love going around. People settle any past uh, difficulties or misunderstandings. If there was estrangement, they come back together. And, you know, the man dies with love for his wife or the wife for her husband and with love for the children and the person dying has made all provision for the children, given them a big inheritance, made sure that the businesses they run or the projects they run are going to go on with their descendants. And this way a person dies a good death and they've led a good life. So that's... A much more our understanding of a successful life than if a person is rich or powerful. But, you know, can they, do they die a satisfying death? Of course, Prabhupada was listening to him say that nobody dies peacefully. He said, if I put a gun to your head and say, now die peacefully, <laughs> uh, nobody will say they're dying peacefully. But this is the, the most peaceful way to die. But here the Bhagavatam is condemning this mentality of dying with attachment and worry and concern. As Prabhupada is out here, King Paranjana continued worrying uh, about things in the world. I remember uh, when my mother was dying, I, I had the good, good fortune to be able to be with her every day in the last three weeks of her life for like 
12, 13 hours a day. My mother had been born in Jerusalem. My oldest sister had moved to Israel when she was 19, and she married in Israel. She spent her entire adult life there. And we had a lot of other relatives in Israel that we would visit. And my mother was a very avid Zionist. So when I first uh, was visiting her in the hospital, three weeks before she died, she was almost all day watching the news, and especially she would watch news about problems in the Middle East and problems in Israel. And I was thinking, you know, if she keeps doing this, she's going to again take birth in the Middle East. <laughs> you know, she, she's going to mean she grew up in America. She came to America as an infant, but her heart was always in Israel. Um, she would give, she gave millions of dollars to charities in Israel and, and so forth. And I thought, you know, if, if she dies like this, then she's just going to go there again. So I didn't say that to her because she didn't uh, believe in reincarnation. But I just said, Mother, you're going now. You're dying now. Uh, this is now other people's worry. This is not your worry anymore. Let it go. Be peaceful. And she did. She did. She, she stopped. She completely stopped watching the news. Completely. Uh, I remember my, I had a cousin running the nursing home where my mother lived. And his wife got very upset with me and said, why isn't your mother watching television anymore? She loves television. It's your influence that she's not watching television anymore. I said, oh, it was her decision, which it was. I said, you know, it's up to her. She can watch. She can do whatever she wants. If she wants to watch, she can. If she doesn't, she doesn't. And, uh, but I remember she, she was very upset with me on that. But my mother stayed firm that she wasn't going to absorb her consciousness in that anymore, that, that she was going. And uh, in general, it's like that in life, isn't it? That uh, if you leave a job and you go on to a new job, that you stop worrying about how, how things are going in the old job. You, you let go. I mean, Rupa Goswami gives this example in Bhakti Vasamrita Sindhu in terms of our surrendering to Krishna that we give ourselves to Krishna and then we don't worry about ourselves anymore. We let Krishna worry about us. And he gives the example, which must have been very common in his time, that if you sell an animal to somebody else, you stop worrying about the animal. The animal becomes somebody else's worry. <laughs> right? Or we give up some service that we had. If we had some service we were responsible for and we give it to someone else, then we let go. Uh, we let them worry about it. Mm -hmm. So this is somebody trying to hold on to things that they are being forced to let go of. They don't have a choice but to let go of it physically, but they're still holding on to it mentally. Now we could ask about responsibility, about taking responsibility for one's children. So we're going to look at that first. We're going to look at the Shastric concept of taking responsibility for one's children. And we're also going to look at the Shastra concept of taking responsibility for ourselves, because this is what's going on here. Take care of your children or take care of yourself. And what is that um, relationship? So first of all, to be responsible to take care of one's children and one's, one's general responsibilities in this world. So we find that the Srimad Bhagavatam, and I bring this up quite a bit because it's all over the Bhagavatam, has a very strong focus on being responsible for succession. It's one of the strongest themes that runs through the Srimad Bhagavatam 
particularly that of kings. The Bhagavatam's narrations are focused to a large extent on kings and royalty and how the kings were super concerned that they had children, that they were able to produce children, and that those children were good children and could take over the kingdom after their departure. And if the king was not able to produce a qualified heir, then this was a source of great anxiety. So again, this is a recurring theme. It happens over and over and over and over and over again. You know, we have whole chapters in the Bhagavatams of genealogy, and again of kings, that, you know, this king had these children, who had these children, who had these children, who had these children, and uh, then so many stories of people who struggled with infertility. We have Chitraketu, of course, uh, Dasarath, um, or with bad children like Anga and Vena. So this, this was a very, again, it's a prominent theme. Because one of the things that we are expected to do as a human being is that any projects for which we are responsible, we are expected to turn over that responsibility to a qualified person before we give it up. And because we could die at any moment, we're supposed to have this view of having someone in training. That we should be, we should as soon as possible, we should have someone in training so if there's an emergency, someone else can take over. And when we die, or when we are ready to renounce, go to another place, or whatever, that somebody else can manage it. That it's not that we leave something and it just falls apart. And as I've mentioned before, there's the very famous book in management by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And there he writes about what are who are leaders he's looking about in the Vaisha world, the corporate for-profit profit world, who brought their companies from very good companies to great companies in, in terms of, of money, in terms of finances. And one of the qualities he saw in these leaders was that they were much more focused on the organization than on themselves that their, their idea was that the organization would do well and that the organization would not be dependent on them, that it would continue in their absence. It would continue after they retired or after they died or whatever. Whereas organizations that failed, the leader was very focused on, on usually a man, on himself as the leader. And in fact, we find like the vast majority of religious movements do not continue long after the passing of the leader. That's just a sociological fact. The vast, vast, vast majority of religious movements are so leader-centric. They're so dependent on the personality and the presence of the leader. Like Paranjana is saying here, Aparayana. Uh, they have no one else except for me. So that's a kind of an ego boost, if you think, you know, well, everything's dependent on me. (laughs) But it is exactly that. It's just about ego. It's not about service. So the best leaders are those who are preparing for succession. Succession has been a very important topic in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness for the last decade or so, as, you know, more and more uh, the the leaders are getting old and and getting very ill or dying and, and so forth. So that's one reason for wanting to take responsibility for others. And another reason is that part of the duties in the Grahasta Ashram, the Grahasta Ashram has two main duties for society. One is to produce honest wealth, according to the Varna, and the other is to produce good population. 
So these are the two main ways that the Grahasta Ashram, those in the Grahasta Ashram are contributing to society. Honest wealth and good population. And good population is, is huge. You know, if you have well-trained people in the society versus when you have ill-trained people in the society. It's, it's practically everything. Any of us who want to run a project, we all know from experience that having good people is the most valuable asset. If you have a lot of money and lousy people, your project is going to fail. And if you have very little money and excellent people, your project will succeed. That having excellent people is most important. And excellent people comes from childhood. It comes from pregnancy even. And those of us who deal with a lot of projects and who deal with a lot of people, we know this. We see it all the time. People who come from dysfunctional, messed up, broken families, generally speaking, there are always individual differences, but generally speaking, are a lot more messed up than people who come from stable, loving families. I mean, the evidence for this is beyond dispute. Like, I spend time with my granddaughter and her family. They have a, a child who's three and a half and one and a half. The one, you know, the, the one and a half year old is not going to have a conscious memory of this time of his life. But what he's bringing with him is a sense of love and security. That he's got all these people who are there for him, who love him, who care for him. That people are basically trustworthy. He's going to have a very good sense of foundation of security. And then I see they're training the children nicely. They're training the children to say please and thank you and excuse me and to be considerate of others. There's this training that starts extremely early. It, it starts, you know, as, as young as two. So this is the, a big responsibility of the Grahasta Ashram to raise human beings nicely. And it, it, it's a huge responsibility. I mean, it takes children so many years. You know, you've got to put in 16, 20 years to civilize a human being. It's not an easy thing. It requires a lot of dedication. So that's very important. But we can have these two senses of responsibility that I'm taking care of my children whether there are biological children or whether they're uh, people under our care, and I'm providing for a succession. I was thinking we can do this in any of the modes or in transcendence. So in the mode of ignorance, uh, one is taking responsibility in whatever way is the easiest. One is not going to go through a lot of trouble. And one really has a sense of possession over one's children or one's dependents. Mm that one can kind of do with them as one likes. That's very much in the mode of ignorance. And again, the training will be whatever's easiest. The parents are not going to go through a lot of trouble to train their children. They're going to do whatever is, it comes without much endeavor. But their sense is of a sense of ownership. And what they want most from the children is loyalty. They're really in the mode of ignorance. In Tamagun, people are really raising the children so that the children will take care of them. They really want something out of their children. They're not so much raising the children for the good of society. Then in the mode of passion in Rajagun, one really has this sense of themselves as being very righteous. 
And so definitely in Rajagun, one is thinking, I am raising these children for the good of society. And it is my responsibility, this thing, aparayanaha. They have no one but me. I, I am the doer. I am the doer. I'm raising these children. I'm contributing to society. I am a great person. I'm an important person. And everything depends on me. Even though I have this sense of succession, I have a sense that everything really depends upon me. In Tamagun, you don't really care. You know, if things fall apart after you're gone, it's not so important. But in Rajagun, again, in, in Tamagun, you're having children for your own enjoyment or accidentally and in, in Rajagun you're having children for the good of society and you're having children for succession but with very much the sense that you're the doer and you're the owner and that everything depends upon you that one really has Rajagun person really has a very strongly inflated sense of their own importance and that's that's what's going on here that Parenjana has this, this super inflated sense of his own importance and this, this becomes like the be-all and end-all of life. Uh, that's not true in Tamagun. In Tamagun, just creature comforts are the be-all and end-all of life. But with Rajagun, being a good person, getting your name in the history book, having your statue put up in the park, you know, doing something great for the world is the be-all and end-all of life. Then in Satvagun, one is taking care of one's children and providing succession because it's the most harmonious thing to do in the universe because it's my role in the universe. And one has some mood of being the doer, but one has more of a mood of being the doer in harmony, not being the doer exclusively, or being the doer independently. And one thinks, yes, of course, uh, it is by nature that there's reproduction, that life goes on, that there's facility. And one is teaching, uh, one's mood is teaching children to be also in harmony and in balance to have a, a good society, not so much in terms of righteousness, but to have a good society more in terms of ecology. And I'm not just speaking about, uh, I am certainly speaking about, but not only speaking about ecology in terms of, of having good air and soil and water, but also just a, a sense of universal harmony. In Satvagun, there's not much of a sense of us and them, friends and enemies. Whereas in Rajagun and Tamagun, that's very prominent. So raising children in Rajagun, I'm raising, raising them to, for my country. Prabhupada talks about here in the purport about my country. You know, for my country, for my family, for my clan, for my project, and the succession of what I'm doing. And in Satvagun, it's much more universal. It's much more I'm trying to benefit the planet. And then in Bhakti, one is taking responsibility as a service to Krishna. <laughs> One is raising children to give a jiva the opportunity for a good human birth. Just One has children in bhakti with the same motive that a guru makes disciples, with the same motive that a person opens a temple or a preaching center, where you're trying to help people who are presently conditioned to become liberated. And you're giving them facility, you're giving them time and energy and money and, and guidance as a service to the Lord. And Bhakti Unod, of course, writes about this a lot in his songs, about how he considers his home to be an ashram. He considers his home to be a temple. And he considers his wife and his sons and his daughters to be the temple ashram residents, to be Krishna's servants. And that he's maintaining the ashram, that he's maintaining them for the purpose of, of pleasing Krishna, 
just like in so many of our ISKCON temples, we have a brahmacharya ashram, we have a ladies ashram, and there may even be facilities for married couples to live, and the the temple authorities make sure that there's prasadam, they make sure that there's heat in the winter and so forth, as to facilitate everybody's becoming Krishna conscious. So the the grahasta who's in bhakti is thinking like that. How can I run a, a household where everyone can become Krishna conscious? And they're not thinking themselves as the doer at all. They're thinking that they're that Krishna is the doer, and they're acting as the instrument. There's some sense of being of doership in all of the modes, but above the modes, there's not a sense of that. There's a sense of agency in 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 the way that I'm making a voluntary choice to do this service for Krishna. But one is really feeling that they're an instrument, that Krishna is working through them as an instrument, and that they're facilitating the plan of the Lord, not because, and this is a very important distinction, not because they're needed. See, this is in the modes, one thinks, I'm needed, I'm indispensable. Again, I'm focusing on this, having no one else to depend on. You know, I'm indispensable. If I don't do it, nobody will do it. If I don't do it, it won't get done. So in bhakti, one doesn't think that way at all. One is thinking rather, of course, Krishna has so many agents, but he's kindly engaging us in this service. He's kindly engaging us in this service. So this is, in all cases, you are going to see whether one is in Tamagun, Rajagun, Sattvagun, or in bhakti, we're going to see taking of responsibility, generally speaking. I mean, there's instances in the Bhagavatam and in Bhakti where a person apparently walks away from their responsibility because they have another service. So we do see that, and we do see that Advanaprastha, a person walks away. Yeah. So a person in Sattva would walk away only if walking away is more harmonious. A person in Rajas would walk away if they get discouraged by the results they're getting. And a person in Thomas walks away out of selfishness and laziness. But we do see that generally people in all three of the modes and in Bhakti are highly responsible people. That's generally what we see. I'm just now reading the ninth canto about King Ambarish and how Ambarish was the emperor of the world and had inexhaustible wealth. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about these very rich people today in our society, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. They actually literally have inexhaustible wealth. They are not capable of spending that wealth in this life. I was reading about the other day about Bezos' ex-wife and how she spent millions, and yet her accounts increased. <laughs> that no matter how much she spends, she keeps getting more money. And so it, this is inexhaustible wealth. You know, you just... You can't even imagine how you could spend it. So Ambarish had that kind of wealth, that kind of responsibility. And he took his responsibility very seriously. As a Vaishnava and Prabhupada was writing in the purport about how this is what we want. We want all the governments in the world ruled by Vaishnavas. So again, in, in any position, one takes a lot of responsibility, either for one's ego in one of the modes or for Krishna. However, Srila Prabhupada says the highest principle is to save others, but higher than that is to save yourself. So such has to also be the case. Even if one is a materialist, we cannot help somebody else if we ourselves are not properly situated. We just can't. 
if I'm if I'm not on firm ground, then I can't help someone who's drowning. Like when they teach you life saving, they teach you that if the other person is panicking, you can't save them. Because not only will they drown, but they'll pull you down as well. And you just can't. It's not possible to save somebody else without saving yourself first. So, so we see people trying to do this. You know, we see people who try to be responsible for others without taking care of themselves. And this is the very problem that Parenton is having here. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know his own life. His own meditation throughout his life has been materialistic. So he's so focused <coughs> he's so focused on saving his children, but he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know doesn't know what he's supposed to do. How is he going to be able to instruct his children? I mean, I can't... <coughs> I was having this problem actually today, right before this class. I was teaching some high school students logic. And we were going through some logical puzzles. But I was struggling to figure them out myself. And so, if I couldn't figure them out myself, how could I instruct my students how to figure them out? I mean, it was actually kind of embarrassing. I was like, well, you know, I need to do some more preparation for my classes. Because I myself was struggling. Like Prabhupada says, you can't tell people not to smoke if you're smoking. It just doesn't work. You know, it's... What are you taking care of your children for? What are you going to train your children to be if you don't know where you are or who you are or where you're going or what your own purpose is? Then it it just becomes, I'm I'm raising my children so they can raise children so they can raise children. For what? You know, I'm just having things go on so things can go on. And they never go on eternally anyway. I was just reading about King Kamudi where he had this wonderful daughter, Ravati, and he didn't know who to marry her to. So he thought he would ask Lord Brahma, and somehow he had the ability to travel to Lord Brahma's planet. It's pretty far out. And the guest there, Lord Brahma, is listening to the Gantarvas in the musical performance, and Lord Brahma just, you know, you don't have to wait till the performance is over. And when it was over, Lord Brahma laughed. And he said, anyone you considered raising, marrying your daughter to, and their sons and their grandsons and their great-grandsons have all died. And he said, and this always fascinates me, nobody even knows their names anymore. You know, this list of genealogy we have in the Bhagavatam, often it's just a list of names. And each name, you know, to be in the Bhagavatam, must be a great personality, but all we have is a name. I was reading this one name, Ogavan, and his son was also Ogavan, <laughs> you know, like Thomas and Thomas II or something. And it's, it's just a name. 
What did this person do? What did they think? How did they live? It's gone. So if our only purpose is, you know, I have a business and I turn my business over to my sons and my grandsons and we can put a sign up, you know, the business has been in the family for 200 years and I get to see the weddings of my great-grandchildren or what, and that, what is the point? It all gets finished by time anyway. Maybe we have an illusion of eternality that way. We have a, an illusion that I'm doing something meaningful because it's lasting for 200 years. But nothing lasts anyway. And in the whole vast scheme of time, if something falls apart after two years or after 20 years, it still falls apart. I was the other, way, the other day looking for a sign for Tulsi's greenhouse. Someone stole a Tulsi plant, and so we decided we need to put up a sign. And so I'm at the sign-making place, and one of the main things that we're discussing is how long it will last. All the different kinds of signs. You know, this kind of sign will last five years, this kind will last ten years, and, and so forth. And at one point they said, well, this will really last a long time. And I said, well, eventually the greenhouse itself will break, and everybody laughed. You know, so regardless of whether one is a materialist or a spiritualist, we have to save ourselves first. Just taking care of others and just taking care of succession without taking care of ourselves will not work. It won't, it won't even work materially. You know, I was talking to a friend. She and her husband both have COVID-19 and her husband is much sicker than she is. And she wrote me that she was just like had a breakdown from taking care of him. That she was pushing herself so hard to take care of him while she was sick that she broke down. And this is a common phenomenon. Who's going to care for the carers? You know, you're a nurse and you're on a 14-hour shift day after day after day and you burn out. And you can't take care of anybody anymore. That, so that's true even if you're in the modes of nature, even if you're a materialist. What to speak of in bhakti. Therefore, Prabhupada said, the highest principle is to save others and higher than that is to save yourself. So there's no use in having things go on if you, don't, if you aren't situated and you don't know what they're going on for. That has to be not only the first thing, but it has to be an ongoing thing. And I, I see that this concept that the highest thing is to save ourselves often gets neglected in the name of service. It often gets neglected in the world by materialistic people. You know, we will often glorify people who damaged or destroyed themselves in so-called service to others. And even among bhakti yogis. Oh, wow, this person sacrificed their health and they sacrificed this and they sacrifice that to, for the mission and it's like um, and that's a good thing is that something we really want to glorify and then people are there you know all burned out and, and discouraged and depressed <laughs> because they didn't save themselves first you know in fact this is one of the donkey urine baths that Bhakti Vinod outlines from Manashiksha uh, verse 6 where you neglect your sadhana, for example, 
in order to get money from rich people. And, and we've seen this kind of thing. You know, we have to build a new temple, we have to collect money, so you don't have time to chant your abs, you don't have time to read the books, you know, you have to get on the mission, you have to get on the mission. Hmm? But the opposite is also a problem. If we're so focused on ourselves, and, you know, this is, this being so focused on ourselves can be a problem, especially of renunciates. That there are many people who don't get married and don't have children, I'm, I'm sorry to say, out of gross selfishness. They don't want to care for another human being. They don't want to take that responsibility. You know, it's, then one becomes selfish. One loses compassion. You know, if one is always and only focused on oneself. And we also see this tendency. It just I'm just going to take care of my own spiritual life and my own advancement and I'm not going to really work for the preaching mission and I'm not going to take responsibility in the preaching mission I'm not, you know I'm just worrying about myself and the pendulum goes the other way and then we don't have any compassion and we don't have any connection and there's so many places in the Gita and the Bhagavatam where it says we have to be merciful to all living beings. It's an absolute requirement. In fact, Krishna says it's even a requirement for impersonal liberation. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Even if we want to be liberated into the Brahman impersonally, we have to be kind to all living beings. What to speak of in bhakti? So we see on the one hand people who burn themselves out in the name of helping others, and we see on the other hand people who shut off their compassion and shut off their empathy and shut off their connection just to take care of themselves. But both things, both compassion and care of others and care of ourselves should be done as a service to Krishna, not in the modes. Because anything we do in the modes will end up disappointing us and others. It will end up with a, a backlash. Someone showed me a video of themselves shooting a gun for the first time. And, you know, there's the recoil. You shoot the gun, it jumps back. And, and this is the law of action and reaction. Anything we do in the modes, or Prabhupada explains here in this purport, you know, we're meditating on our family, and then you're going to take birth with your family. You know, you're meditating on the country, you're going to take birth in the country. You know, it's, it's going to come back and bite us. It's not something we're going to be ultimately happy with. But anything we do in bhakti is, is real detachment. That is actual detachment. That is actual renunciation. That I'm doing it for Krishna's pleasure without attachment to the results. I'm trying to take care of these people and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to do my duty and then whatever happens, happens. You know, that's... That's the mood of Bhakti. And one's not thinking, oh, these people are dependent on me. I am so important. I'm so significant. That's not where we're getting our rasa from. <laughs> or we're getting our, our taste from doing it for Krishna. I'm doing this project for Krishna. I make a succession plan for Krishna. I, change, I train successors for Krishna. I produce children for Krishna. I train those children for Krishna. I chant my rounds for Krishna. I read the books for Krishna. I do everything for Krishna and Guru. I, 
myself or others. And I properly balance my self-care with my compassion for others. I take care of myself to make myself more fit for others, to take care of others. And then we won't have this problem. Even if we don't have the opulence of living old enough, living long enough to take the Vanaprastha order, separate ourselves from family, even if we die when we're in our 20s and our, we do still have uh, little young dependent children, if we've lived in the proper way, then we will not die with this lamentation like Parandana. We won't die with this attachment because always we'll be doing things just for Krishna and not for our ego. Otherwise, even if you die when you're 110, <laughs> you know, and your children are all 100, <laughs> they're all 90 years old or something. <laughs> oh, my 90-year-old children are dependent on me. Uh, and one will always die lamenting about something. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Muted. Unmuted. So what would, it, what would be the ideal picture for Paranjana at the end? Get his, get his ducks all in line ahead of time and then because you talked a lot about preparing for succession. Get his ducks in line and then leave them in the hands of Krishna and have faith that Krishna will take care of everything and just totally focus yes. his mind on Krishna. That's right. And even if you can't get all your ducks in a row, you know, we can't control when we're going to die. Mm. So that's at all, always. Always I'm depending that Krishna is taking care. And I'm acting as his servant, not because he needs me, and not because there's no one else, and not because what I'm doing is so important in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but just out of love, he's engaging me in his service. And so if I have to die when my kids are only one year old, Krishna will take care. And if I die when my children are, you know, 70, like the Queen of England, you know, she's in her 90s and her son's in his 70s, I think. You know, it, it, then I also just trust that God will take care. That I don't think I have to hang around forever to manage everything because I'm indispensable. I've heard a saying that graveyards are full of indispensable people. <laughs> yes, indeed. And the reality is that in a very short amount of time, nobody will remember our names or what we did. That's the reality. Yes. I, you know, I've asked so many people all over the world, how many of you all know all the names of your great-great-grandparents? I've met only maybe three people who knows all the names of all of their great-great-grandparents. So that means the grandchildren of our grandchildren will not know our name. We will be forgotten very, 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 very soon. So to think that we are indispensable is madness. It's just madness. Thank you. Anybody else?
Yeah, I got something. Uh, lately in the news, um, the media is now presenting the idea that the unvaccinated, they are the problem. Even though I think uh, I heard at one point seventy percent of the population might be vaccinated, uh, you know they're targeting these people that are unvaccinated, and they're they're making jokes, comedians and night television and uh, uh, radio personalities are making jokes about they should all die. Oh my God! <laughs> an, an article. There was an article that. Uh, in the Atlantic Monthly or something, that they shouldn't be given medical tre- treatment. If oh, my goodness. My God. Yeah. So when you were saying, uh, I balance my self-care with compassion for others, we're losing our humanity here. Mm. We're losing our friends, our humility, our care and concern for others, you know, in this very strange uh, situation. Mm. You know, where there's this forced, you know, everybody's being pressured to get vaccinated. Well, you can look at it both ways. I mean, my personal decision, and it's just my personal decision, was my own risk level was for the disease was very low. I In the county that I live in, we've had a very low incidence all along. In our local devotee community, we've had zero intra-community cases, zero. The cases we've had uh, came from other places and then they were quarantined. They never spread in the community. So uh, I got vaccinated basically for the sake of others. My my concept was that it would help it would help decrease the spread of the virus within the world. I did not do it for myself because I felt my own risk was very low. I mean, for my, there's somewhat for myself. I'd say 5% for myself that I was thinking I would much rather chance a new virus than a new disease when, you know, I knew the results of the new, the known results of the new disease could be so horrendous and the known results of the virus were benign. So that was my personal choice. But I think, you know, in general, the choices that we're going to make should be both, that whatever it is, on an individual level and a societal level, should be both what's going to be best for me and what's going to be best for my for the community, what's going to be best for the world. You know, and to say we're not going to treat people, I mean, then why treat smokers, you know? I mean, I mean, I know that a lot of insurance companies, they'll charge more for smokers, but you're not going to say, well, we're not going to treat smokers in the hospital because they've made some personal choice to put themselves at, at risk. It's just... That that's absurd. That that's it, it's really inhumane. I mean, I don't doesn't surprise me. The whole virus came from meat eating. You know, it doesn't surprise me that people make inhumane choices when they're in a meat eating society. But in in general, yeah, the the, the and I understand the math of it when they're saying that the unvaccinated are taking up the majority of the hospital beds. And they can't treat people who have other conditions and, and so forth and so on. But still, that's, that's inhumane. And it's, it hardens the heart and it, it makes spiritual life impossible. It makes even normal material life impossible if people are so hard-hearted.
You know, it just... Right. And, and this this is the complaint. I mean, if you want to talk about vaccination or smoking, and this is the complaint against those of us who believe in the law of karma. That they'll say, well, according to the law of karma, you say everyone brings on their own suffering, and therefore why should we help people who are suffering? And yes, everybody brings on their own suffering, ultimately through karma. I mean, whether we can see it directly by somebody makes health choices that put them at risk or whether we can't see it because it's from a past life. But being compassionate to others is good for us and it's good for the world. You know, every, every suffering that everyone has is ultimately their own fault. Even if I take all precautions, you know, even if I wear a face mask at, at all times and I wear gloves and I sanitize all surfaces and I'm double vaccinated and, you know, I, I can still get sick. <laughs> I mean, hello. So whatever, whatever suffering we, we go through, whether we can find the apparent cause in this life or not, it's all ultimately our own fault. And therefore people say, if you believe in karma, you become fatalist and you don't help anybody. But no, we help everybody because it's, it's for my benefit. It uplifts the whole world. Even if my helping you is ineffective because you don't have the destiny to be helped, it's still good for me to try to help. Hardening our heart hurts ourselves terribly. You know, it, it, it's... And, and you see this. You know, I'll see this even with devotees. Well, well, they'll say, you know, well, the person got themselves into that. Their heart becomes hard. What to speak of wishing ill for someone? What you're talking about is wishing ill for someone. Well, they didn't take the right precautions, and so we, we hope they die, you know, <laughs> instead of getting... That it, it damages ourselves so much. We should always wish well for everyone. Prahlad Maharaj wished well for his abuser. You know, Prahlad Maharaj, he, he was the well-wisher of the, of the father who was supposed to be his protector and instead was trying to kill him. And he was the well-wisher of that person. So we should always be everyone's well-wisher, even though we may see that they brought their suffering on themselves because everybody brings their suffering on themselves. Yeah, that's always true for everybody all the time. <laughs> You know, and don't I want compassion in my suffering? I mean, come on. When I'm having a difficulty, I, I am so grateful for people who are there for me and people who are helping me. Even if I know philosophically that I'm ultimately responsible for every all the suffering that I'm going through. I mean, it's... it's we hardly have a society of human beings. What is the Bhagavatam says? Two-legged animals. Even a lot of animals are more compassionate than humans today. Yeah. Anybody else? So hopefully we die thinking of Krishna and his family and not our family in this world. <laughs> Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai, Shri Bhagavatam Ki Jai.